0: Lord Jesus, as our kids head out, we want to bless them in the name of Jesus. Father, we are cognizant that they are the church both of today and tomorrow. And uh, Father, I pray that as they're out there today, this would not just be a time that they gather, but a time where you are infusing their little spirits with power and strength to walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We are in the middle of a uh, series that we have called Found, and uh, we are actually looking at the shepherd's heart of God, the good shepherd. So we started out in John 10 uh, and looked at Jesus as he talked about God as the good shepherd. Uh, then we flipped back into the Old Testament and did the very well-known 23rd Psalm. Today we're in Jeremiah 23 and Luke 18. If you want to put your fingers there, begin to, to scroll there in your, on your phone or in your Bible if you prefer. And uh, next week, we're going to take a look at Ezekiel um, and Zechariah, and then we're going to conclude with uh, Luke 15, which is one of my favorite passages. Um, One of the things we're committed to here at Saltbox is to be intelligent in the Word. We want to be intelligent in the Word and understand and get uh, the scriptures down inside our hearts. Sound good? All right, there's one-year Bibles, actually, on our guest table over here, offerings and tithes pay for those, so um, if you don't have a one-year Bible or you don't have a Bible, please grab it and uh, join us as we're all sort of going through that together. Okay, I'm going to um, move towards Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8, and then I'm also going to uh, read Luke 18. I've got two little chunks of Scripture, with which if uh, you ask any person who preaches today would say, don't read too much Scripture, but I'm going to... Read too much scripture, okay? Um, before we uh, do that, uh, I just have a, a funny little story that's not totally related, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Last night, uh, or yesterday, Abby and I celebrated our anniversary, and uh, did I go? And we went out to a restaurant, and I ordered um, scallops, and the scallops were in kind of an oyster... Uh, stew or something it was a wonderful dish and I'm eating and we're talking and we were actually reminiscing we had a really sweet moment because we were reminiscing what what has been the highlights of the last you know number of years and what are we dreaming about in the future and even what have been some painful spots you know we did it all over anniversary dinner sitting there talking about it and I'm taking some of my last bites of my meal and I crunch down I stick an oyster in my mouth and I crunch down on something and I start fishing this thing out I found a pearl. <laughs> I called the waiter over, and he looked at it, and he was like, oh, my goodness, and he freaked out, and he called some girl who was a jewelry maker, and he was like, maybe, maybe she can make you a special little pendant out of it. <laughs> anyway, I kid you not, I, I found a pearl, and it's, it's in Abby's uh, her, her little purse that, that she had, but I, we both howled over that. We thought that was so funny. So anyway, God's sense of humor. Okay, uh, we're going to do Jeremiah 23 and Luke 18. I'm going to draw some parallels between uh, Jeremiah and Jesus in the way they both lived in their life and walk, um, and particularly related to the Good Shepherd. Um, then we're going to draw some parallels to the church today, maybe some even some difficult parallels of where the American church is, um, because this is a challenging passage. Uh, and then we're going to conclude with just some thoughts on Um, how can we keep ourselves from drifting into a more negative spiritual state that we're going to see both Jesus and Jeremiah talking about here? Make sense? All right, let's dig in. Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord God of Israel says to the shepherds who tend my people, Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture, you're seeing the good shepherd here, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior." So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and all of the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. The word of the Lord from the Old Testament. Flip over to Luke 18. We're going to start in verse 9, and this is a short little passage, and we're going to go to 14. This is Jesus speaking, and here's what he said. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went unto the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." Lord Jesus, as we open your word today, your most holy word, would you enliven it by your Holy Spirit who is present among us right now? Father, more than funny or entertaining stories from me or even great worship from Perry and the team, we want an interaction with you where you touch our hearts, our minds, where you conform us into the likeness and image of Christ Jesus, where you, Christ Jesus, are literally formed within us. And therefore, the way that we interact with our spouses and with our kids, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with people at the grocery store, with people who cut us off in traffic, would overflow with you who is in us. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to draw a couple of similarities between Jesus in the New Testament and Jeremiah in the Old. I think there's a number of things that are shockingly similar about these two. And, and Jeremiah, just like much of the Old Testament, is all preparing the way and pointing to Christ Jesus who reveals himself in the New Testament. But there's some things about Jeremiah that are shocking, uh, shockingly similar. And his life um, looks very similar to the life that our Lord Jesus lived. On planet Earth. So, I want to give us just some thoughts. You see, Jesus and Jeremiah consistently rebuking the Pharisees, the shepherds who are scattering and destroying his sheep. Now, let me make a, just one little statement here. The Pharisees uh, were really, I think, a group of people who had wonderful right desires to be right with God and to walk with God. And unfortunately, they carried out their their right heart's desire, probably in a very fleshly and almost sinful, not almost, a sinful way, because they began to add dozens and dozens and then hundreds and then even thousands of additional rules to how you have to walk with God in order to be close to him. And so what what they ended up with is a group of people who are so sort of fascinated and obsessed with the outside, and they're neglecting the heart. Make sense? sense? So you begin to see Jeremiah here as he's rebuking uh, the shepherds. And let's just ask a question here. Who who are the shepherds? In the Old Testament, he he could be referring to um, some of the kings. If you're reading through the one-year Bible, that's scary to read about how gnarly a lot of those kings were, right? And it just says it right there. So-and-so refused to walk in the way of the Lord. Whoa. Shepherds could have been the minor and the major prophets in the Old Testament. Shepherds were certainly people like Moses. And then in the New Testament, shepherds become the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And then in our day, who were the shepherds? The pastors. I'm going to hide under the table now. <laughs> I say that jokingly, but I also say that with a measure of great seriousness. It's a humbling and even terrifying thing to to be called to pastor a group of people and know that one day you'll stand before Jesus on that call. Did you gather? Did you bless? Did you urge them towards Christ Jesus? When you met with them, when you interacted with them, were they spurred onward towards love and relationship with Christ? Or were they spurred towards performance and works? You could probably even think with me about different meetings you have and different people you interact with. And when you walk away, you you might end up feeling pushed one way towards relationship with Jesus or urged towards relationship with Jesus or pushed towards external things, performance. But both Jesus and Jeremiah rebuke. They really called them the evil shepherds, which is a big word. Both refer to God as the good shepherd... Both Jeremiah and Jesus live in similar historical settings, and and here's what I mean. Jerusalem was about to fall when Jeremiah lived at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and the future Roman emperor Titus was about to bring down Jerusalem and the temple when Jesus lived. So very similar historical um, pictures and climates that they lived in. Both came from high tradition. Jeremiah had a priest-prophet background, and Jesus came from a divine, kingly sort of plains of of Nazareth. And while Nazareth was hated in one regard, it was also known to be the place where the heir and line of David would come from. Both of these men were very conscious of their call, a divine call from God. Both men were accused of political treason. Both were tried, persecuted, and imprisoned. We don't know exactly what happened to Jeremiah at the end of his life, but he was most likely stoned, so both were killed. Christ was the only one who rose, our King Jesus. Both foretold the destruction of the temple. Both wept over Jerusalem. It's fascinating to me. Both these men wept over Jerusalem. Both were forcefully and publicly condemned by the high priests or the... Pharisees of their day. Both were rejected by their families at points. Both were very tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. Jeremiah is identified with Isaiah as a suffering servant. Both men loved Israel deeply. Both men, as you read the accounts of their lives, knew what it meant to be lonely both enjoyed an unusual fellowship and intimacy with God, Yahweh, as Jeremiah would have known him, and Jesus, too. One of my favorite things about Jeremiah is that he has this open and honest communication with God. It's free, it's authentic, it's almost conversational. Those of you who are going to join us on the Israel trip that Dr. Clive and Calver and his wife Ruth are going to lead us through, He's the chairman of our elder board, by the way, but he'll take you to a place called Aramos. It's most likely where Jesus also withdrew to that secret place. So you have these two men who have cultivated this deep, intimate walk and in relationship with the Lord Jesus and really becomes, I think, sort of a blueprint for how we're called to relate to him, a blueprint for how we're called to walk with him. The similarity that I want to park on today is their focus and their uh, um, commitment to confront and even to condemn self-serving, nefarious shepherds. And that's a little scary. Can I, just, that's scary. But you see it in Jeremiah and you see it in Jesus. So here's the question. Is that applicable to pastors today? James 3.1 says, pastors and shepherds will be judged with greater strictness. You know, church cannot be a cool club, a nice idea, a place to demonstrate the latest trend. It's the body of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is literally the bridegroom who will return for his bride. And every church that lifts up the name of King Jesus is an expression of the body of Christ, whether you love or agree with everything they do or don't do. They really are. They are an expression. As long as Christ Jesus is Lord and he is lifting up, they are an expression of Christ Jesus. And if you have trouble with some churches, that's okay. Jesus actually, in the last uh, book of the Bible, Revelation, he talked about seven different churches, and of the seven, he gave a rebuke to, do you know how many? Five. Five. Those aren't promising odds either, are they? Lord, Jesus, help us as we embark upon this journey. This is why Abby and I drug our feet and went, Lord, you don't want want us to plant a church. You don't want us to lead part of your body. This is scary. But it does have to be taken seriously because you're called to be a shepherd. And what Jeremiah is literally saying, if I go back to Jeremiah 23, is he's talking about these shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of his pasture. Notoriously, church people are probably some of the most difficult on the planet. Most of us could look around and probably say amen. (laughs) Most of us could probably go around, and I'm not going to dare let us go here, but most of us could probably go around and tell of a time we've been hurt by church people or church pastors. I think there's a natural propensity in our our flesh and in Sort of the negative makeup of, of the, that inherited thing that came through Adam with, with sin to focus on the outside and not on the inside. And I want to see if I can articulate something here before I bring it back around to us, but there's a trend. There's something as I look across the evangelical landscape from 1970. I was born in '80, to where we are now, almost 2020. And there's this shift that sort of happened in the 70s and then 80s and certainly going into the 90s where we decided that it was better to be culturally relevant. And there's nothing wrong with that. But prior to that, um, you had a lot of people who came to church in suits and ties. You had a lot of people who would have shown up at church in a dress. You'd have a lot of people who just, you had to have church in a building with some sort of steeple, you know, in the late 70s. That was kind of the the norm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that by itself. And then this shift begins to happen to where we sort of are today, and suddenly we find ourselves in the cultural norm where you can't worship unless the room's blacked out. There's got to be lights. There's a celebrity pastor move where, you know, you've got to dress cool and look cool, and you've got to have hair. <laughs> And in of itself, there's nothing particularly wrong with that either. But what can begin to happen, whether you have a traditional bent or whether you have this current bent, you know, it's kind of like the new rules for how to do church. The old rules for how to do church are hymns and suits and, you know, okay. The new rules are blacked out stages and auditoriums and hipster pastors. And and I'll be the first to tell you, you can go look in my closet. I got skinny jeans and I got cool boots and... You know, I wear Birkenstocks and oh, well, we, whatever, and I may even wear them in here sometime. But I have intentionally, and our elder group has intentionally gone, we are not going to um, be fully absorbed and focused on just the exterior. Because it's what Jesus came, it's what Jeremiah did, and it's certainly what Jesus did where he rebuked the Pharisees for a, an infatuation and a focus on just the exterior, what Christ Jesus came to be concerned about was our hearts. The condition of men and women's hearts before him is what matters. And you see Jeremiah saying it here, and then you see Jesus saying it here. He's telling this story of this proud, arrogant Pharisee. Isn't it good that I'm not like these other guys, this guy especially? And then you got this tax collector who would have been hated by everybody because he's literally a known thief. He's in there beating his chest going, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I think the risk that we're sort of living in, if, if you've seen or been a part of the more traditional or, or the more current or contemporary, is that you begin to put an emphasis on that, and you can even begin to limit a move of God and go, in order for God to move, it has to look this way. I've sat with Christians who go, oh, no, in order for God to move, it's got to be hymns, and it's got to be this way, and you can't wear a hat in church. And I mean, I'm like, okay, okay. And then I've sat with other people and gone, well, it's got to be this way. And you've got to look cool. And, you know, we need to appeal to the culture. And you know what? I want to appeal to Jesus. Amen. I want Jesus' blessing on our house. And you know what? I am not going to scrub us to look like the culture, nor am I going to scrub us to look like the churches that have been. God has called us to be a unique, peculiar, set-apart people. Now, Jesus always lived with the people. Always lived with the people. I want you to think on something with me. The evangelical Christian scene in America, there's much criticism for what's going on uh, politically, for the laws that are being made, for things that are happening. I want you to think a second. Do we ever see Jesus raining down on Caesar? Or Rome? Very little. A few little comments. You think there was sexual immorality in Jesus' day? Of all types and flavors? Yes. Do you see Jesus railing on people who are living like that? Do you see Jesus railing on Rome? Do you see Jesus railing on even the political leaders of the day? It's fascinating to me, but who Jesus comes down against is the shepherds. The Pharisees. Oh, Lord, have mercy. And what we begin to see in King Jesus is that he's interested in the individual heart. He's interested in taking a heart that is fully surrendered. And one of the things I love about the book of Jeremiah, if you read the whole thing, is his his sort of, uh, the, the whole thing that goes through it all is this rigorous surrender, this unyielding surrender. And you get that same message from Christ Jesus. This surrender to him, this we have been, I have been crucified with Christ, in the words of Paul. I no longer live but Christ lives in me and through me. One of the risks when you look at this move in America that I've sort of been illustrating is you begin to attach or associate that God's presence in the move of the Holy Spirit, whether you're a contemporary, you know, whatever expression or a more traditional expression is um, associated and confined to continuing in that form or function. You know what I'm saying? One of the things I love about our elder group is the whole elder group to a person says, no, 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 no. We're not going to just follow this form or that form. And we had some offers from a number of different church planning agencies to plant this little church through their agency. But the way they wanted to do it was hand us a book, and it's like a plug and play. It's like starting a franchise of a restaurant. And I, you know, I get, if I'm totally honest with you, I wanted to go that way because it's safer. It's just easier. They hand you the whole book. This is how you do welcome, and this is how you do your website, and this is how you do this, and this, and everything, just all done there right out. But the answer that kept coming from our elder board was, we are going to follow the cloud. Remember that? In the Old Testament, there was a cloud by day, there was a fire by night when the people left Egypt, and they would stay camped, and then all of a sudden, what would that cloud do? It'd move. And when that cloud moved, what would the Israelites start doing? We've got to break camp, pack up our tents, pull the sheep together, round up the kiddos, roll up the carpets. It's time to go. We're rolling. And people meet with me right now periodically and go, what's the vision? Where are we headed? Tell us where we're going to be in five years. And you know what? My answer right now is I'm still waiting on God. We are committed rigorously. To follow the cloud. Because I refuse, and we as a little elder board have refused to just plug and play what is working in some other spot of this country. Praise God it's working in another spot in this country. Can we just say glory to God that churches are working around the country. Beautiful. Beautiful. That doesn't mean it's going to work here. So our mission, even as a church, every one of you who wants to be a part of this little journey that God has us on, is Lord, what are you doing in Wilmington, North Carolina? Ruth, one of our elders, corrected me because I always say Little Wilmington and Little Saltbox. And I say that because I'm thinking of this big, huge uh, perspective of the body of Christ at large around the world and all the churches and, you know, we're one little expression. But she's right because we are, it, it sends the wrong message, we are significant. You are significant, and Wilmington, for whatever reason, is significant. And so here we are. So the question is, Lord, what are you doing in our city, in this day, at this time, in North Carolina, on the eastern seaboard, and how can we stop griping and fussing and fuming about whatever's going on around us, and get on board with advancing the gospel of Jesus in our city, in our area? I once heard someone say to me, Michael, Christians love. They love, 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 love to talk about things they can't do anything about or change. Come on. If you don't see a little bit of yourself there, you might need to read that line again. We love to fuss and talk about things we can't change. Jesus, change me. Jesus, change my Marriage. Jesus changed the way I father my kids. Jesus changed the way I interact with my neighbors. Jesus changed the way I speak to people. Jesus, 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 don't let me be a shepherd that scatters your sheep. If some of my conversation, even about the current church... Um, Strikes a chord with you, I would invite you into a journey with him or with someone else around here to walk through some forgiveness of old churches and old pastors. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if you're like me, you've got some church hurt. I drug my feet, Abby and I drug our feet on planting a church because we had more church hurt. We had a whole trunk of it in the back of the car. <laughs> he did this, and they said this, and they and you know what? It was true. It was true. But at the end of the day, the question is, are we going to sit around and carry our trunk of church hurt around and fuss and cuss and kick the tires and, you know, whatever, and talk about things we can't change? Or are we going to bring that church hurt to Jesus and go, Jesus, the Pharisees in the day of Jeremiah were scattering the shepherds, the Pharisees in the day that you walked the earth were, excuse me, scattering the sheep, and the Pharisees today, there are Christian pastors today that he would rebuke, and they might be scattering the sheep. But the question is, are you going to stay there? You're going to carry that big trunk of church hurt around? Are you willing to go, you know what, Lord? They're imperfect people, too. And I assure you, Jesus will deal with those people. He's not going to do it in your way, He's not going to do it in your time, He's not going to do it based on your recommendation. But it says really clearly here Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture! Woe to them! And then you see in the New Testament, where we just read Luke 18, he's literally saying that the tax collector goes home justified. And how does the Pharisee go home? Got to kind of read between the lines on that one. But he says that the tax collector goes home justified. Probably means the Pharisee goes home under the heavy hand and discipline or conviction or judgment or woe or wrath or you pick the word of God. I've been there before in my life maybe you have too. I don't ever want to go back. I don't ever want to go back. I want to flip the metaphor here before I make some personal applications for us and I actually wanted us to think sort of out loud and I have a slide to do this. But if we wanted to grow us, we're going to keep in the same vein. If we wanted to grow Pharisaical kids in a family, or if we wanted to grow Pharisaical people in a church, what would we do? Do we have that slide? Oh, look at that. So I just started going, okay, how would we raise a Pharisee at home or at church? This isn't, um, better not get over here, it's going to squeal at me. Um, this is by no means um, fully comprehensive. This is just some thoughts I had. Number one, we'd reject God's internal heart work in favor of managing external appearances. Can somebody say amen? We'd say, no, God, I'm not going to deal with the inside. I want to clean up the outside because I want to be respectable. And I want people to like me. And I want people to think Michael's cool. And I want them to like a lot of my photos when I post them on Instagram. And I want people to say good things when I post it on Facebook. You hear what I'm saying? We get so infatuated with the outside and we forget what's going on inside. Number two, we would use excessive control. We would overreact to failure. We'd be unforgiving and impatient with the process of change. One of our elders had to come to me this week because I made a mistake. It was a minor mistake, no big deal. Do you believe that I made a mistake? Oh, God, the pastor made a mistake. No, no. He could have called a meeting. He could have sent out a big email and carbon copied all these people on it. But instead, we were just hanging out at the pool and the kids were swimming. And he just said, oh, yeah, by the way, you probably need to think about this. And I walked away so deeply blessed. I actually wrote him an email that night or that next morning. I went, you know, you could have called me in front of a group and humiliated me. You could have sent an email out and carbon copied all the elders or other people in the church. But you knew my heart. And you called me in and said, hey, you're just overlooking something. You need to make sure you tend to this. What a great elder to watch your blind side. What a great elder to back you up in an area you don't even know. I didn't even know. I didn't even thought about it. I was like, oh, it's so good. But, but see, that's in stark contrast to this, in this number two. There was no overreaction to my failure. There was no unforgiveness. There was no impatience with the process of change. In fact, it was quite the opposite. And I'm telling you, you want to raise little Pharisees, you be impatient. You be ugly. You be unforgiving. You want to create a church climate where people get religious, you do the same thing. Number three, we would elevate human preferences over biblical principles. We have to worship with a blacked out thing and lights on. No, you don't. No, you don't. We have to worship with hymns and nothing else. No, you don't. No, you don't. My Bible says make a joyful noise. That means I can lead worship, and I'm a terrible singer. Y'all would all leave. But the point is I can worship. You hear me? We start elevating human preferences and saying, this is what matters and this is what's important and this is what God said. Suddenly we're like the Pharisees adding these extra laws to how God wants to justify and deal with our hearts. And he's, he's literally saying, you tend to the inside. We would encourage unnecessary separatism. I think Christians fall into this all the time. All the time. Christ Jesus said clearly in his life, in his messaging, and everywhere else to be in the world, but not of it. If you come across a prostitute on the street, do you sit and talk to her, or do you run away? If there's a homeless person, I was in church one day, literally, I was at a church, and I was preaching, and a homeless person came in, and I think he had... um, uh, literally defecated his pants. He smelled horrible. And the whole pew got up and moved. I'm like, can somebody please carry him to the bathroom and help the man find some new clothes? We got a whole closet of them back there, please? Come on, I'm guilty of that too. We run away from those things that we don't understand, from those things that we don't like. We shirk back and we practice unnecessary separatism. I was homeschooled for seven years of my life. I'm not against homeschooling. I went to public school for, from seventh grade all the way, I actually graduated from Harvard High School. From, I went to uh, Roland Grice and then here. Homeschooling was good for me for those f- first few formative years. Public school was vital for me. Like I became who I was becoming in public school because I'm sitting next to the guy who's smoking a joint. Really. Guys who got the Playboy or whatever under their seat. We didn't didn't have phones at that point to look something up. But I became and I began to forge my relationship with the Lord, not by running away, but by being in the context of unbelievers. And I began to not be afraid of people when they're living in sin. Great! Let's go hang out! Let's talk! I'd love to have a relationship. If you've looked at our little salt box logo, that little salt box logo... There's little stickers if you want to put them on your car, your water bottle. It's on some shirts out there. But the whole point of that is it invites conversation. You know, the moment we put so-and-so church on our car, this is just my opinion. Don't take it as gospel truth, but it's just my opinion. I go so-and-so church on my car or on my shirt. It's a little bit like saying Republican or Democrat. I'm like branding myself, and I'm just like making this announcement, this is who I am, period, no conversation. But you put this, something interesting like this on your car, and all of a sudden, thank you, Perry, you put that on your car, and it's like, what is that? And what do you have an opportunity to do? Talk. Talk. Because Christians notoriously um, hunker down inside our little walls, and we hide out. God may give us a building one day. I suspect he will, but I love that we're in a school right now, and I'm loving every day of it. And it's a pain to set up, and it's a pain to tear down, but I love that we're here because we're in a public high school, and there's almost no one on the planet that doesn't feel comfortable coming to a public high school. Right? Somebody say amen. All right. Parents, I think you've got to be careful there, too. If you have a a child who is unnecessary, separate him. I'm on number four. If you have a child who needs to be separated for a season, separate them. This isn't a judgmental thing. You need to do what's best for your family. But I'm just saying at some point, if you're encouraging a life that's fully separated and not integrated with the world around us, you have to go, I'm not fully following in the way of Jesus. He didn't call us to live in a little commune somewhere. He just didn't. He was out hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and the gnarliest people of the day. You name them, he's eating with them. I hope, I hope that's what's said about salt Box. And I hope the religious churches don't like us. Can I say that? Number five, judgmental. We'd be judgmental, we'd be belligerent, we'd show favoritism, we'd never laugh or encourage humor. I've got a weakness here, I get too intense, I get too serious, I don't relax and laugh enough. But that laughter, that joy of the Lord being our strength, entering his courts with thanksgiving, entering his gates with praise, that is all, it's part of the human experience and I don't think it's against the heart of God. Number six, we would lack genuine relationship with Jesus and instead we would substitute religious behavior, And number seven, we'd stand up here and teach self effort and never teach the exchanged life. And in short, the exchanged life is Lord Jesus, I come to you broken, busted, sinful, downtrodden, a big old mess, and I'm gonna exchange that because you died on a cross with your righteousness and your love and your grace. And your forgiveness. And I get your forgiveness, and I get your grace, and I get your love, and I get your acceptance, and I get the righteousness of Christ, and Christ Jesus is being formed in me, and you paid for all my ugly sin on the cross. And we're not gonna preach a gospel of self effort. There's a passage in Philippians that I love that says, Work out your salvation. It never says work for, it says work out. Paul says, I'm striving until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. We will not teach self-effort. So how then do we keep ourselves? Because the point is not what other pastors or other churches or other leaders or anybody else is saying or doing. The point is where am I? Where are you on this journey? So I want to give you four things that I think will help just guide the process and make sure you stay in truly a loving relationship with Jesus. Number one is fall in love with Jesus. I've quoted Bill Bright before, but I love one of the things I love most about Bill Bright is he, if you ever said, uh, how can I pray for you? He would always respond, pray that I don't lose my first love. Pray that I don't lose my first love. People, the Lord Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. He has pursued you, he will pursue you, and he will continue to pursue you. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, how ugly things have been in your life, it does not matter. He will come after you, and his love will never stop, and will never give up, and it will never back down. It will require at some point that you turn from the life that you're living, and you decide to surrender your life to him, and you follow after him. But I think the first thing is so simple. It's to truly fall in love with Jesus. The second thing is to serve God through relationship, not rules. Serve God out of delight, not duty. Some of you might sit there and go, well, Michael, you tell us to get in the one-year Bible. Isn't that duty? The point of being in the one year Bible is that you'd have a relationship with God, that you'd be able to listen to His voice, because my sheep know my voice. That's the point of it. Can the one year Bible begin in duty? Maybe. My prayer is it ends in delight. One of my favorite times for me is in the morning. Your time doesn't have to be in the morning. If you're a night person, do it at night. If you're a lunch person, have some time at lunch. But but here's the the, the point is to find a space and a place where you can interact with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you do that through his word. You do that through some worship. You do that through prayer. Now, I'm going to tell you my little morning rhythm, and there's a risk of me doing this because you're going to go, oh, here's the new rules for how to relate to God. No, no, it's not. It's It's just the way I do it but the important thing is to find yourself a place and a space like that eremos that you're going to see if you go with Clive to Israel. It'll blow you away and never be the same. My morning looks something like this. My alarm goes off really early, really early, because... I get, uh, I just, I don't know. God speaks in the morning. My mind's fully engaged. Everything's quiet. There's nothing in my world that's chirping or buzzing or clawing for my attention till about 7.30-ish. And so whatever time I have, I get up early. And I go down and I make coffee. And at some point while I'm making coffee, I literally say good morning to the Lord Jesus. I really do. It's a discipline in my life to acknowledge the presence of the Lord Jesus and his Holy Spirit in my life while I'm making coffee. I flip on a little light at our dining room table and it overlooks our backyard and we have this like woods all around. It's really it's just, it's like no distractions, just nature. And oftentimes I'll stick my earphones in and I'll worship to a song, just one or two, just because it kind of Crimes my heart. It just gets me sort of loosened up. I'm entering his courts with Thanksgiving. I'm beginning my day with praise. I'm thanking him that that there's a new day and his mercies are new in my life. I pull out my five-year journal somewhere in there and I begin to go, Lord, I'm struggling with this. This is really hard right now. I'm reading this. I believe I'm hearing this from you. Somewhere in there I have some prayer sort of a rhythm I go through there. I've got a one-year Bible that I open up, and the one-year Bible just puts me in a spot where I'm immersing my heart into the Old Testament, into a psalm, into a proverb, into the New Testament. And it's providing a canvas on which the Holy Spirit of God can speak to my heart. I don't want to live dead religion. I don't want to live that. I want to live a vibrant relationship with God, like Jeremiah did, like Jesus did when he walked the earth. I open the word, I'm just digging through it. And I'm not just reading it at face value, I'm also looking at things, but I'm saying, Holy Spirit, speak to me in your word. Find me here, correct me, direct me, discipline me if necessary, fill me with your presence. And then I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, but I actually have a set of morning declarations. It's kind of funny. I don't know very many people that do this, but it's some things that God has spoken to me. It's some things that I want to be true about my life. If people look back at Michael's life when he's 60, 70, 80, 90, whatever, it's things that I want to have been hallmarks. And I actually read just a set of morning declarations. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. It actually starts with, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But my Jesus lives in me and through me. And then it goes from there. The important thing is that you find a space and a place that you can serve God through relationship, not rules. That you can find a way to walk with him out of delight, not duty. The third thing that I would say is you, we would respond as a people, as a church, to all sin with the life and love of Christ. What do I mean by that? When someone cuts you off in traffic, <coughs> When someone talks bad about you behind your back, when your spouse is impatient, disrespectful, ugly, angry, whatever it is, are you responding with life? Are you responding with love? The majority of people I talk to would say, yeah, but there is no but. Your response is never dependent on what they're doing or not doing. It's just not. I don't care who you are. I don't care what the circumstances are. Your response in Christ Jesus is not dependent on what they're doing or saying or not doing or not saying. It's not. You can be okay even if they're not okay, whoever they are. My boss isn't okay. That's okay. You can be okay. My spouse isn't okay. My parents aren't okay. You can be okay in Christ even if they're not Okay, do we respond to sin with the life and love of Christ? Make another little statement here. If you find yourself a very judgmental person, you might want to watch this because I would actually say if we're very judgmental, it probably means that we haven't fully received the life and love of Christ ourselves. And that's an area where you might want to take your five-year journal or your journal or whatever it is and go, Lord Jesus, would you work with me, work in my heart, Cultivate the soil of my heart so that I can fully receive your life, your love, and your forgiveness. And the fourth thing that I would say is to guard your heart from going back. Because I don't know why, but there is something in human nature that we, it, it, we, we just naturally if we're left to our own um, sort of natural whatever, inhibitions, we drift towards managing the exterior and neglecting the interior. Guard yourself that you don't drift back into a performance-based walk with Jesus, but that you stay in a place of relationship. There's a gentleman in the room today, and I'm not going to tell you who he is, and one day I'll have him come up and tell this story but I wanted to end with this. Jeremiah is rebuking the evil shepherds. Jesus is rebuking the evil shepherds. This gentleman told me a story about his dad who the day after, his dad was a pastor, and the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, his dad in uh, Greensboro got together with many other church leaders and they marched in hopes of unifying the church, in hopes of bringing together racial reconciliation. And he was a pastor and his elders and some of his deacons actually turned on him. One of his deacons came and actually spit on him. Church people can be some of the ugliest people. On the planet. We don't have to be those kind of people. So here's what I want to do as we sing this concluding song. If you're here today and you might say, Michael, I think I've fallen out of love with Jesus, I've just lost my first love, that's okay. When we sing this last song, I'm going to invite you to stand up and interact with him. You might be here today, and you go, you know what? I've tended to serve God out of rules, out of duty, and I've, like, I've lost that delight. I want to find it again. I invite you to stand with us. You might be here today, and there's more than a dozen in the room that need special prayer, special touch from the Lord in an area of your life, job, health. A couple of people are coming out of surgery. A couple of people are going into surgery this next week. If you need special prayer, I'm going to ask you just to stand up to them. I'm not going to ask you to do anything or get out of your seat but just interact with the Lord Jesus and if, if I'm st- if you're sitting out there today and you're looking at me going who is this guy and what is he talking about relationship with Jesus I don't even know what he's talking about you grab me grab one of the elders we'd love to pray with you but you can surrender your heart to him today and walk with him all the days of your life and if you're just here and you go you know what I just want to worship Jesus with me then I'm going to invite you to stand too